Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, GM betrayal. This is, of course, devastating news uh, to the workers, uh, to the community, uh, and to the suppliers as well. General Motors shuts down its Oshawa plant. Is this just the canary in the coal mine for Canada's auto sector? And what's the plan for the oil patch, reeling from rock-bottom prices and job losses? The Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines joins us with the government view. And then, good deals? And Donald, it's all the more reason why we need to keep working to remove the tariffs on steel and aluminum between our countries. Should the government have signed the new trade deal with the U.S. and Mexico without getting rid of those steel and aluminum tariffs? And did they go far enough with new sanctions against Saudi Arabia? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is here on why he believes the government failed on the world stage. And then, MP Mystery. This has nothing to do at all with anything sinister, except to feed my own addiction. A Liberal MP quits the party citing his gambling addiction, but denies allegation of money laundering or even terror financing. But why weren't his problems flagged earlier? Was he a security risk? MPs are here to debate that and the mounting cost of asylum seekers. Also, the world mourns the loss of a U.S. president. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. It was kind of like one of those dysfunctional family dinners. Underneath compressed smiles at the G20 summit in Argentina, Canada, the U.S. and Mexico finally signed the new NAFTA deal. Still has to be ratified in each country. And those steel and aluminum tariffs still remain. Nonetheless, it was a huge moment for a group of leaders who don't agree on much, including on how to deal with another member of the G20 family, Saudi Arabia. Canada slapped targeted sanctions on 17 Saudi individuals over the case of the murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But was that far enough? Let's find out. Joining me now, the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, great to have you back on the program. Let's start off with the so-called new NAFTA. Would you have signed this deal without getting rid of the steel and aluminum tariffs? Absolutely not. I made it very clear that there's no way we should be signing a trade agreement with a country while we still have illegal aluminum steel tariffs that threaten 35,000 jobs directly, up to 140,000 jobs indirectly. We know that the manufacturing sector is fragile, given what's happened with GM very recently. So these are jobs that are at risk, and there's no way we should be signing a deal without making sure that those tariffs are removed. This was our bargaining chip that the prime minister just threw away. The Trump administration, Trump himself, wanted this photo op. They needed this photo op. This was our chance to say, we're not going to sign it until you remove these, these tariffs, these illegal tariffs. And that was a lost opportunity, okay, but I, in addition to the impacts to farmers and the impacts to oh, the rising cost of medication. But I'm trying to understand the risk here. Um, the, the, it's true, and, and Justin Trudeau has spoken strongly about these um, steel and aluminum tariffs, although there's been no action on them. We all agree that they're unnecessary and illegal. But are you saying the risk of not having a deal, the risk of Don, what Donald Trump said, slapping tariffs on autos and not getting a deal to at least stabilize that relationship, relationship is less than the risk of living with the steel and aluminum tariffs, even though we have counter-tariffs against them. This was the best opportunity to say, listen, we're signing this deal. Just remove these tariffs. They don't make any sense. They're illegal anyways. The, the clause on which they're based has no basis. So remove them. This was right. the opportunity to do it. I would have uh, been forceful and make sure that 
we did not sign until this was removed. Right. And there's it, a lot of jobs at stake. These are thousands of jobs at stake. Well, if it was a bargaining chip, you'd think he might remove them now that they got the deal, but we'll see. Let me talk about General Motors. You mentioned that already. Um, in Oshawa, obviously, the plant will close. There are 2,800 jobs there that will be gone uh, by 2019. What would you do to keep those jobs there? Is there anything you could do? Well, we first have to accept that we should not be accepting defeat. Our approach should not be, okay, the deal is done and this is over. We need to be fighting for those jobs and figuring out a, a solution. Let's get creative. Let's find solutions to making sure people have a job there and have a robust sector. The other thing we've well, been asking let me just for ask you, let me, in let me general just, is this is not the first, this is going to be maybe one of many other potential closings if we don't develop a national auto strategy, something we've been calling for for a long time. And specifically, we said we need this government, we need the prime minister in within two weeks to meet with the municipal provincial leaders, sit down uh, with industry and workers and figure out a way that we can save those jobs. Okay, I appreciate that. By the same token, I'm just trying to get specific. What would you specifically do? For example, would you offer General Motors more subsidies after we had to already forgive them of loans almost for a billion dollars after the bailout? Would you offer more subsidies to General Motors to stay? We know one thing for certain, that blank check giveaways with no conditions attached, no enforcement attached, do not work. So we okay. need to make sure that any approach has conditions clear. Uh, we already see that the government's going down the same path with a $14 billion economic statement, which does not have concrete conditions or strings attached to job retention or creation. That has got to be a criteria in any sort of support program that comes forward. There's got to be clear conditions that apply to jobs, retaining them or creating them. That has got to be a condition. Ms. Singh, you speak passionately about workers, but here's what I don't get about your position. You talk about the workers in Oshawa, the 2,800 workers there. Look what's happening in Alberta. Oil is at historic lows, 13 to $10. You've got an unemployment rate in Calgary of 8.2%, almost double the national average. They're losing $80 million a day. Rachel Notley says it's because we can't get a pipeline built but you don't support the Trans Mountain Pipeline. She looks at people like you and said, how can you stand for working families when you're literally putting, it's like you don't care about the working families of Alberta when they're out of work, but you speak passionately about the working families in Oshawa. How do you square the circle? Working people that work in the oil sands are not to blame when commodity prices fall through the bottom. When we got commodity prices for oil, that are sub $20 sometimes, the volatility of those commodity numbers is not the fault of the hardworking people that are putting in time day in, day out in the oil sands or any other resource extraction. It's not their fault, but it would be our fault if we don't come up with a sustainable plan to ensure that they've got a job not just today, but for tomorrow. They've got to be sustainable, long-lasting, and not subject to these busts and booms and the volatility, the unpredictability. We would be doing a disservice to those folks. But hold on. I, I understand that, but people got to make a mortgage payment today. People are losing their job today. The, the future, which you're talking about, 
that may be right, but you're looking at working families who are losing work today, billions of dollars lost today. You talk about sitting down and coming up with a creative solution for GM. Here's a solution for those workers according to someone who shares your philosophic position for the working person, Rachel Notley. Build a pipeline. You refuse to do it. It's like you're looking at those families and saying, sorry, I can't help you now. I may help you in the future. How can you stand for the working person with that position? Do you have to rethink your well, position? Well, let's take that $5 billion. Instead of buying a pipeline, which we did, those $5 billion would be far better used and more effectively used to directly support workers with initiatives right now. Instead of buying something and then committing to building something, which is going to take years, that's not going to happen overnight. That's not going to happen tomorrow. That's not going to happen in a day. That's going to take a long time. And then to see the results of that, that's also not going to happen overnight. We're talking about long-term right there as well. Mm -hmm. I'm saying instead of investing in a long-term solution, which we don't know is actually going to save, uh, create opportunities for jobs that are going to be long-lasting, investing in something that's not going to actually create jobs that which you know are going to be stable or sustainable or predictable because we can't control the commodity prices. And we know, given the, the world scale, that those commodity prices are not stable. Right. They're hovering all over the place. They're going extremely low, record lows. Well, Canada's and in low. those circumstances, Can it would be irresponsible for us to invest more money into unpredictability and instability right. instead of saving those workers today by ensuring that we've got a plan today to actually help those workers with sustainable jobs that are going to be long-lasting. Right. Well, the Canadian price is 10 to 13 bucks. Outside in the U.S., they're selling it for 50 bucks. Let me move on to Saudi Arabia, though, because I think, I think it's really key uh, post G20. Uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, widely seen by many in the world to be the guy behind the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, also responsible for the war going on in Yemen. If you were the prime minister and you were at the G20 and there, there were these targeted sanctions that Canada's put on it, would you have shaken his hand and would you have included him, him, the crown prince, on the list of targeted sanctions? These gestures of shaking hands, not shaking hands, pale in comparison to the concrete step of ending the arms deal today. That is a concrete step that shows that we stand up for human rights, that we believe in the rights of people and that we don't support a war that's resulting in massive starvation and famine and, and pain and suffering, so do you and we don't him? support a regime which has a horrible record, particularly given the circumstances around the death of a journalist, a journalist who was openly critical of the government, who happened to be killed in a consulate. This is just outrageous that we're continuing to sell arms to a country like this. I can't fathom so, okay, but why our Prime question, Minister is not ending that agreement today. Fair point. Would you have included the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia on the list of targeted individual sanctions. 17 others were on the list. Would you include him? Uh, again, um, if the McGinsky, uh, the act that we used, uh, exactly, could be used uh, in this circumstance. It should be used, and we support the fact that it's been used. The, given the evidence we have, there is clear evidence, and there's clear um, uh, pointing to the fact that, that the Crown Prince was involved or had some knowledge, that evidence is out there. Uh, I'm saying that's one step that's, that's being considered. But you, more would, powerful put him, you, than you that. would put them on. Far more, but you would put them on so I'm that. Saying more powerful than that, that's absolutely, we should be applying that and we should be applying to anyone okay. that could be considered to be involved 
and uh, the fact that it's been used, I think, on 17 individuals, using it on everyone that's involved is appropriate. Great to have you back on the program. I got to leave it there today, Mr. Singh. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Evan. How much resources does FinTrack have to actually go after each little $10,000 transaction? And if I'm money laundering, I'm not doing transactions in the millions to catch attention. I'm doing them at the $10,000, $15,000 limit mm -hmm. uh, in order to uh, actually get away with it. The Liberal MP grilling officials about money laundering is now at the centre of serious allegations that he himself is involved in major money laundering and that the RCMP is investigating him. But late Friday night, Raj Graywall released a video denying all those allegations but announcing he was quitting the Liberal caucus, not stepping down as an MP, mind you, to deal with his admitted multi-million dollar gambling addiction. Check it out. I accumulated a personal debt in the millions of dollars. But like many addicts and people suffering from mental health issues, I started to personally borrow money solely from friends and family to continue to fuel the gambling. But now questions about him are exploding. How did he pay back so much money in gambling loans so quickly? Was he abusing his position of power? Is he a security risk? Talk about that and the new numbers on the massive cost of irregular or illegal asylum seekers. We're joined by Liberal MP Marco Mendocino, Conservative MP Aaron O'Toole, and the NDP's Nathan Cullen, good morning to all of you. I'm going to start with you, Nathan Cullen. You've been questioning uh, the government on all this and the transparency about this. What concerns now do you have about Mr. Graywell now that he's released this video denying anything uh, improper? Well, the story hasn't been consistent since the start. First, it started with announcement that he was quitting politics because he was ill. And then the illness was exposed as being a gambling debt. And then on and on, we see the, all the tape that you showed. Two central concerns. One is the Prime Minister was happy that he was quitting politics, so I assume the Prime Minister and the Liberals are happy, unhappy now that he's staying on as an MP, and that has a whole bunch of protections for him. That we, it's very difficult to subpoena him. He's protected by privilege of Parliament. There's a number of things that question to me why that decision was made. Second is the, and it's the one you raised, the money. How could he owe millions of dollars two weeks ago to friends and family and suddenly not owe millions of dollars on an MP's salary? That's where did the money come from? Unless he's independently wealthy, which I don't know of, maybe Marco can help us out, but that MPs owing money, the reason we have all these ethics rules, why he's under investigation, is that if we owe a great amount of debt to undisclosed sources, that can put us under undue influence. That's the point of the rules. And for all of the allegations that are now swirling around this MP, I mean, it is difficult to understand the truth from fiction and how this got this far. And nobody seems to have known anything about it in the Prime Minister's office until last Wednesday or last Sunday. Aaron O'Toole, what's your take on this? I agree with a lot of Nathan's concerns. My, my central concern is how Trudeau's office has been trying to mislead people with respect to this case. In fact, we only found out that Mr. Graywall had not resigned when my colleague Peter Kent mentioned his name in the House of Commons and was told we couldn't do that because he, he hadn't resigned. You know, Prime Minister's office had said he resigned. They thought it was appropriate. Now we're looking into it, Evan. Globe and Mail and other reports have said he was under investigation and he suddenly came off the Finance Committee a few months ago and was put on the Health Committee by the Liberals. Uh, and then quietly on a Saturday morning, yesterday, the, the whip said he's no longer in the Liberal caucus. So they've never been forthright about what's going on. My assumption is they knew several months ago that there was this large debt, there was potentially investigations, yet they've, we've, we've had to push for any information and the story keeps changing. So 
Not only are there a number of questions about Mr. Graywall, the Prime Minister's office handling of this, in fact misleading MPs on several occasions, causes a lot of concern. Mr. Mendocino, how does the Prime Minister's office not know that one of its own MPs has multi-million dollars of gambling debts literally at the casino across the river uh, behind us? That's a potential problem, he's sitting on the Finance Committee. How do they actually say that, oh, we just found out Wednesday? Is that plausible? Yes, of course it is, because that, that is exactly the facts of the situation. And look, I don't know what it is that's caused uh, Raj Graywell to reconsider his decision to resign. I can't get into his mind or his motivations any more than I can get into anybody else's minds uh, who would be in a similar set of circumstances. What I can tell you is that for the very first time, Raj came to the Prime Minister's office and he informed him that he was going to be stepping down as the Member of Parliament for Brampton no, East due to serious personal mental health issues. And it was on the expectation that that would be occurring imminently. That right. did not occur. And as a direct consequence, Evan, he has no longer part of the Liberal caucus. And lastly, let me just say that we should not gloss over the fact that this is indeed a difficult subject. We all know someone who suffers from personal mental health issues, and we should be hoping that he gets the support and the treatment so but, that he can get better. Okay. Mar Mar Real quick, Mar Marco, you, you and I know many, too many cases of people in the House of Commons that are dealing with those illnesses, and we have a great deal of compassion for that, right? Whether it's addiction to alcohol or gambling, the question here is that red flags were raised when Mr. Grewal was at Finance Committee and started probing senior enforce, law enforcement officials in ways that was more than bizarre and raised red flags for the RCMP. It, w the Prime Minister's case is that nobody in the PMO, nobody in the Liberal caucus had any idea. And as I talked to a senior Liberal Evan on just Friday, he said Raj is in total denial of this stuff. Uh, my concern is that the Prime Minister's office is also in a state of denial on this. All right, I got to talk about the growing massive costs of asylum seekers. I want to switch to that issue because the Grey Wall issue is still unfolding. But the parliamentary watchdog reported in 2017 20,000 people irregularly or illegally crossed the Canadian border from the United States seeking asylum. Well, the numbers are going down slightly in 2018. The costs are bigger than anyone thought. $340 million a year, without counting provincial and municipal costs. That adds hundreds of millions more. It could cost over a billion dollars over the next few years. Marco Mendocino, the government funds on this issue have been inadequate for provinces and municipalities. Has your government got any real solution to stem the flow of asylum seekers? Yes, we do. And first, let me uh, just acknowledge that we're aware of the PBO report and we'll be reflecting on it. But let me also set out the facts very clearly. Number one, as you pointed out, based on current trends, applicants under the refugee and asylum class are going down and will be lower than they were last year. That is in contrast to the sometimes hysteria that is raised by my conservative friends. Number two, we have invested over $170 million in the immigration system precisely to address the backlogs which went up dramatically under the last conservative government. And number three, to the extent that there are still challenges within this particular stream of immigration, they will be dealt with according to the law, right. according to the charter, and in a way that is humane. Again, in contrast to the uh, Conservatives, who were, who were held by a federal court to have an immigration policy that amounted to cruel and unusual treatment. All right, uh, got to go to Aaron O'Toole on that. To be frank, there's massive backlogs caused by this. I don't know what Mr. Mendocino, there are almost six-year backlogs there. What's your concern about this, Mr. O'Toole? My concern is both the cost, the fairness to the system, the people following the rules for proper asylum claims, 
and the overall immigration system, Evan. But also, this minister has known this. In fact, when Michelle Rempel started asking questions a while ago, almost two years ago, Minister Hussein was saying, everything's working fantastically well. Meanwhile, he had documents from his own department that said, whoa, minister, if this continues, it's going to cost more than $3 billion with the combined cost of processing and health care for the provinces and potential wait lists of 11 years, Evan. He's getting this information from his own department and he's telling Parliament things are working fine. We need a right. fair, compassionate, rules-based system. What we see now is pandemonium and an unfair process and a Liberal Party that attacks us for even asking questions on it. They've got zero plan and they've got to be accountable because now the P uh, PBO has also said not only is there cost, the whole concept of an okay, anchor so claimant means all of these people bring in more people. So, so two things can be true at the same time. There can be a lot of xenophobia and outright racism in the discussion around this. And the system needs dramatic repair because if there's... It has to be fair and perceived to be fair. And my concern was that with the increase in costs, are other folks seeking access to Canada being delayed or denied that access? And that's something that I don't think the Liberals have gotten their arms around and need to quickly, and it's been an ongoing problem for a number of years. All right, I've got to leave it there this Back morning. Marco uh, Mendocino, Aaron O'Toole, and Nathan Cullen, uh, great to have you here. Lots coming up, though. Autos and oil to powerhouse industries are getting absolutely crushed right now. A massive plant closure from GM. Oil prices dropping again. Does the government have a plan? The innovation minister joins us next to find out. Stay right here with Question Period. I spoke with the uh, chair of GM last night and with Premier Ford this morning, uh, and Premier Ford and I agreed that we were going to do everything we can to, to uh, help the workers. One of Canada's largest industries took a major hit this week when General Motors announced its plant in Oshawa, Ontario will be closed. That will put 2,800 workers out of work directly, more indirectly. But even that gut punch, as the Prime Minister has called it, is, well... It's small compared to the beating that's taking place in Alberta's oil sector with prices at historic lows, closing in $10, $12, $13 a barrel. Alberta is losing $80 million a day. Unemployment in cities like Calgary is almost double the national average, over 8%. Why are Canada's two big industries in such a crisis and what will the government do to get jobs back here. To find out, we're joined now by the Innovation Minister at Navdeep Baines. Mr. Baines, great to have you on the program. Let's start with GM. What exactly will your government do to keep that GM plant in Oshawa open? So as you said, this is a big blow uh, to Oshawa, to the workers in Oshawa, to a very important sector in the Canadian economy. That's why I reached out directly and spoken with, along with the Prime Minister, with the unions and Unifor in particular, I called my provincial counterpart and the municipal leadership as well to talk about next steps and how we can find a solution for these workers. Because I firmly believe GM's made a big mistake by turning its back on these workers in Oshawa. Uh, we won't make that mistake. Here's my problem. What leverage do you have for General Motors? The federal government bailed out the auto companies almost $14 billion. Then your government right. forgave General Motors and another auto company over a billion dollars in loans. You don't have to pay it back, you forgave it. Did that basically mean that the government's given up any leverage you have of General Motors to actually keep them there? Was that a bad decision to forgive their loan? These are 500,000 jobs in the automotive sector, both direct and indirect. So we want to make sure we do everything possible 
to keep these jobs here. We're also focused, Evan, not only on the cars of today, but on the cars of tomorrow as well. So we're bringing in investments in research and development, new technologies to build the car of the future no, but as I well. But I get it, but this GM's building the car, car of the future elsewhere. That's what, they literally said that. And I, I guess my question is, do you have any leverage for General Motors? And if so, does that mean, uh, you've done this before your government, you've offered money, you just gave $20 million to a Maple Leaf food company for a plant. I don't know if there are any strings attached there. Will your government offer General Motors money to stay? And if so, will there be strings attached? So if there is a solution, if that requires investments from the federal government, we're willing to step up. We've done that before, Evan. We changed a program that the previous government had that wasn't working to attract investments called the Automotive Innovation Fund. And we've actually created a new fund with new monies to bring in additional investments. So that's why we're really bullish and optimistic about the automotive sector okay. in Oshawa and in Canada. Minister, last question on that, though. Um, you say you're going to do everything you can. Donald Trump's already openly threatened General Motors that he will pull any government support for their transition to electric vehicles if they don't keep jobs where they close them in the U.S., Ohio, and Michigan. Will you, as the innovation minister, also say to General Motors, no more money from the citizen, no more money from the public unless that plant goes back? Will you use that kind of stick instead of just carrots? Our focus is really on the investments, and one of the issues raised by the Prime Minister, which is a concern raised by General Motors, are the aluminum and steel tariffs. This has actually added costs, which has made it more difficult to produce these vehicles, made them less competitive, which has an impact on jobs. So we're actually focusing on that solution as well. So how can we move forward to eliminate tariffs for steel and aluminum? That brings me, again, you're the industry minister. You've got the automobile industry with a gut punch, and then you've got the other big industry, the oil industry, is getting creamed. I mean, you know that. We're losing $80 million a day in Alberta and billions of dollars in federal taxes because of this. They are demanding your government press forward uh, with a pipeline to get access to market. You are the basically right. the industry minister. What will you do to help that industry, not tomorrow, today? Well, we've taken action by purchasing the Trans Mountain Pipeline to make sure we can continue to see that move forward, to put shovels in the ground. We're also looking at diversifying our markets. We're signing free trade agreements. We're working with the sector to bring in additional investments. In the fall economic statement, we brought forward tax measures to make it easier for companies to invest in more capital and, equi and, more capital and equipment. So we're taking every possible tool that we have in our toolbox to bring in more investments in many parts of the economy, but also in the oil and gas sector well, as well. Rachel we Motley, understand the what they're going through. The, the Alberta Premier, Go Rachel ahead. Notley, wants your government to fund uh, the, the purchase of rail cars to move the oil because you can't get the pipeline built. Will you commit to, f to helping the government of Alberta buy more rail cars to move more oil so they can sell to markets that will actually pay a decent price? We'll get the pipeline built. Uh, we're very clear that this is in our national interest. We're focused on building that pipeline. We're engaging the indigenous communities. We're engaging and working with environmental groups as well. That's our priority. We've taken immediate action on that. And the government of Alberta knows that, and Canadians know that. We've been very clear about saying how the environment and the economy go hand in hand. And we've taken bold leadership by purchasing right. that pipeline and making sure that it's being built uh, to make sure that we can send right. our uh, oil and gas to other markets outside the U.S. To, so we don't sell right. it at a discount. To be fair, you're at least a year behind schedule. When I spoke to the finance minister, shovels were supposed to be in the ground. I'm just, I got to press you on this because in Alberta, this is a crisis. It's a crisis for our economy. You're the industry minister. Do you think you've got to maybe reevaluate 
buying some oil, some some rail cars to ship oil, or getting that pipeline built faster? Do you have to reassess given the the collapse in the price? Look, I understand the anxiety, the frustration that people in Calgary are facing, as actually shared by many other Canadians. This is not only a concern in Alberta, but when I travel across the country. People are very supportive of our government's position of purchasing that pipeline, of building that pipeline. So they know we've taken action. We've made a significant investment of $4.5 billion for that pipeline. And that demonstrates that we're, do, we're willing to move forward on that very important project and right. to get it built in a timely manner. And so we'll do whatever we can to help the oil and gas sector, the automotive sector. We've been very fortunate since we formed the government that overall the economy is doing very well. GDP is growing by 3% half a million jobs, full-time jobs have been created in the last three years, but we have much more to do and we're going to continue to work with all sectors and all the regions. Minister Baines, I got to leave it there. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Evan. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, Saudi sanctions. The government finally takes action against Saudi Arabia months after the horrific murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But is it too little too late. The former national security advisor to the prime minister, Dick Fadden, joins us on the Scrum. That's next. Stay right here with Question Period. We have looked very closely into their involvement in this terrible murder, and it is the clear opinion of our government that they were either directly involved in or complicit in the murder. Well, almost two months after the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the Saudi consulate in Turkey, the government finally took action against Saudi Arabia. Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland announced sanctions against 17 individuals. One name, though, noticeably absent, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the man who's widely believed to have ordered the hit on Khashoggi. Did Canada miss the mark? Meanwhile, a liberal backbencher is resigning amidst allegations of money laundering, even terrorist financing, and a seven-figure gambling debt. Is Raj Graywell a threat to national security? What did the prime minister know about the investigation and when? The Scrum is here to dig into both of these issues. Teresa Wright is a reporter with the Canadian press. Bob Fife, you know him, is the Ottawa bureau chief for the Globe and Mail. Craig Oliver is CTV's chief political commentator. Where's your patented wave here, Craig? You see waves. And our special guest today is the former national security advisor uh, to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, Dick Fadden. Great to see all of you here. Good morning. Uh, Dick, let me start with you. Um, is it possible, I mean, I, I understand the RCMP doesn't inform the Prime Minister's office of their investigations, but is it possible that an MP on the Finance Committee can be racking up a million bucks in debt and no one in the Prime Minister's office has any idea the RCMP is looking into it? Well, with no reference to this particular PMO, all of the PMOs that I've had anything to do with have been very, very effective of knowing what their MPs are up to. It's one of their jobs. So I find it difficult to believe that they would not be aware there's a problem. Now, whether they troll the, told the PM or not is another issue. To say that nobody in PMO knew about this, I have a great deal of difficulty believing it. Teresa, what's your take on this? I mean, this, this gambling scandal and this controversy is growing. It seems more questions than answers right now. 
Well, and that's a problem, right? Any time that you have uh, unanswered questions uh, and then you, you even had the, the Prime Minister coming out and saying, I know you all have a lot of questions, but I'm sorry, um, I'm not going to answer them. Um, so just even acknowledging that um, and knowing that there's going to be more details just coming out. I mean, as reporters, we all call that a story with legs, right? So we're going to continue to hear more of these details. It's going to continue to be a headache for the PMO. Yeah, Craig, drip, drip, drip on this one. A health concern, a gambling addiction, now an RCMP investigation. This right. thing's getting bigger and bigger. Well, the combination of politicians and big money is always dangerous and always a big problem for governments. Uh, and for parliamentarians, so well, look, the, the, uh, look the at key this one. Yeah. The key issue here is where did he get the millions of dollars right. to to go and spend at a casino, um, and what how what was being done for that money? What was he right. doing with was the millions of dollars? He was is that the question? Okay, so you're the former head of so CSIS. So, in my view, the question is: Was he compromised? Was he potentially compromised, or could he be perceived to have been compromised? In all three cases, for a public official. Whether he has decision-making power today or not is irrelevant. He may in the future. A lot of people would like to compromise an MP. Mm -hmm. He has committee duties. He talks to ministers. He has access to the prime minister. And he's got caucus. Yeah, he's got caucus. And to Bob's point, there's a lot of money here. Somebody somewhere is going to want something in return for millions of dollars. Let me talk about Saudi Arabia now uh, at the G20 meeting. Uh, obviously, the dysfunctional G20 met. One of the big issues was Saudi Arabia. Now. Canada had targeted sanctions against 17 different people uh, in Saudi Arabia, but not Mohammed bin Salman. What do you take on that? Is that does Canada need to go further with Saudi Arabia, Craig? Well, I think uh, our foreign minister was kind of saying the same thing as Reagan was saying. Uh, sorry, as Trump was saying. I covered Reagan for too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there you had uh, the president. Uh, declaiming that his own CIA probably didn't know for sure, even though the CIA said it did. And she said similar things, that we have to have absolute proof before we know. So I think that wasn't comforting in particular. Uh, and furthermore, she has said nothing more uh, about whether or not we're going to end providing armored cars, tanks really, to the Saudis, tanks which are being used in, uh, in Yemen. So there are a lot of problems still hanging in there. And she says, well, it's not over yet. And we had to follow the Americans. Why couldn't we have done it first? But at least we were ahead of the British and the French who have substantial financial interests with the Saudis, and they've done virtually nothing. Uh, Dick, your take on this, should we have canceled that uh, light armored vehicle? It's a billion dollar contract. Before I answer that, let me go back to the issue of whether or not the Crown Prince knew about this yeah. issue. I think that's irrelevant. He. Saudi Arabia is a command and control country. Very little of import happens without the royal court knowing about it. So whether he ordered it or whether he created an environment in which it was possible, to my mind, he is politically responsible in every sense of the mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. Much like the prime minister would be here if something like that was perpetrated by a Canadian. The, the concern has been alienating Saudi Arabia, right, who is a key ally in a pretty tough neighborhood. So look at this moment where you've got the West saying we're going to have sanctions and embarrass Saudi Arabia. And then check this out. This is Mohammed bin Salman when he arrives and he basically high fives Vladimir Putin. They give each other what looks like a high five. Is the fear that we're driving uh, Saudi Arabia into the sphere of influence of Russia? Look, there are, there are legitimate reasons to want to um, 
be an ally of Saudi Arabia despite Mr. Bonesaw's actions because they are a counterweight to Iran and Iran is a very powerful influence right. in the Middle East and very destabilizing. So you can understand the American reasoning for that. Well, at the same time, you can't have a, uh, basically the, the ruler of Saudi Arabia going around kidnapping and killing people. And the West has taken a strong stance. I think the Canadian government has taken a strong stance. Some people want us to go farther than that. Yeah. They want us to end the, this, the contract. Uh, the Liberals are going to be very careful about doing that because they won't, they, right now they have a lot of ridings in, in the London area and if they cancel that contract, there are going to be a lot of job losses. Yeah. Yeah, Teresa, 300 jobs in the London, Ontario. Uh, area and reside in that plant. Right. And, and of course, you know, that is a political problem if, if you're talking about trying, you know, the, the possibility of losing more jobs, especially um, in light of what happened with the GM plant. Exactly. But the thing is, you know, what is the cost of a human life? Because as Craig mentioned, uh, some of Canada's uh, weapons that we're um, supplying to Saudi Arabia are being used against civilians. So, you know, the, the, it's... It's very difficult, and it's an it's expensive problem. So it's a billion dollars. It's you know political votes uh, in in Ontario, and it's human lives. Can, can I sort of half paint a different story? I think if we're going to take measures against Saudi Arabia, and I think we should, we should try and pick something that's going to be effective. If we cancel the contract, the people who will suffer are exactly those that you've just mentioned, and there will be a political cost. There will be no cost effectively to Saudi Arabia. They can go and pick up these labs anywhere they want. Alone, Canada is not going to do anything that will effectively convey a message to Saudi Arabia. We need to get the government of Canada to organize a couple dozen countries who are horrified by this and do something that will be painful. There was certainly a message from Putin to the Crown Prince. Yeah. Uh, that picture you just used looked to me like a graduation photo. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the great leader, uh, the master, uh, congratulating the student on a job well done. Maybe he should have added next time, maybe you should try nerve gas. But <laughs> let's hope that this doesn't become uh, the way too many world leaders start to go to use assassination as an instrument of foreign policy and diplomacy. A hit job well done, some might say. All right, uh, I got to leave it there. Dick Fadden, always good to see you. Uh, coming up on the program, economic turmoil. Is Justin Trudeau really to blame for the closure of that Oshawa auto plant, the GM plant? and the deep dive of the oil prices in Alberta. Our special guest is Nick Nanos, the pollster. That's coming up next on the politics of financial pain. Stay right here with Question Period. Your officials have said in response to this crisis, all options are on the table. Prove it. Here's the option I want to see on the table. Scrap your carbon tax. You can't campaign for a job-killing carbon tax on Monday and sit around and wonder why manufacturing and automotive jobs are leaving on Tuesday. General Motors is pulling out of Oshawa, Ontario after 100 years. They announced they'll be closing the auto manufacturing plant. They're putting almost 3,000 people out of work. Now, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Conservative leader Andrew Scheer say the government's carbon tax is to blame. Are they right? And while the economy in the West is reeling under record low oil prices, the government just signed a new NAFTA agreement without getting those very nasty steel and aluminum tariffs removed. So is the economy about to be Justin Trudeau's biggest election problem? Let's bring 
the scrum back. Teresa Wright is back, Bob Fife is back, Craig Oliver is back, and our special guest on this round is the CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. And we'll start with you, Nick. Um, General Motors used to be this symbolic company. Is this now going to be a bad symbol for the government? Absolutely. This closure is a political punch in the gut for the Liberals. People are worried about trade, they're worried about the price of oil, they're worried about interest rates, and now they have a significant layoff, and uh, we got to watch the economy as a key hot button that's going to be driving opinion. Bob? Well, look, of course, any job losses, particularly a good job in the auto sector, are go are, will have repercussions for the Liberals of electorally, uh, and then you also have the whole problem with pipelines and the Alberta economy collapsing, basically. So, yeah, it's a huge problem for them, but it's hard to blame the Liberals for this one. I mean, General Motors wants to move plants to low-wage, cheap-wage country like Mexico. They closed five plants, uh, at least four or five plants in the United States for all good-paying jobs, uh, yeah. jobs as well, no matter what Donald Trump was screaming at the top of his lungs and they still close those plants. Yeah, well, I wonder, Craig, does it give Trudeau some cover that four plants are closed in the U.S. and one here in Canada? In other words, it's not about us, it's not about the carbon price, it's about General Motors. Uh, well, yeah, but it gives General Motors more cover than it gives Trudeau in the sense that uh, they needed to be able to say to the president, well, it wasn't just the U.S. we cut, uh, it was uh, the Canadians too. And the real problem for Trudeau is in the West. It's in Alberta where 100,000 people have been put out of work and that this is the heart of their whole economy suffering right. and that's what the Prime Minister has to worry about and deal with. What did you make of this, Bob, we'll go back to you, when Tr Justin Trudeau, the Finance Minister Bill Morneau, went to Calgary, they were met by protesters. I mean, that's a, you talk to people in the oil patch now and they, they say, look, this is as bad as we've ever seen things. Bob, I know they don't have a lot of political upside in Alberta, but does this start to spread out across the country symbolically? Well, I'm not so sure that it's going to spread out across the country yet. I mean, other than the problems with the auto workers in Ontario. But look, I mean, it, it's easy to blame the Liberals for this, but yeah. oil prices have collapsed. It was the courts that forced the whole issue of that's uh, held up the, the pipelines. And they've spent $4.5 billion of taxpayers' money on a pipeline, which they hope to eventually, right. uh, if they win court approval, to get this through. Not to say that they haven't screwed up. They have screwed up. Uh, they could have had, if they had done their homework, they might not have had a court ruling in the last case. Right. And they cut, uh, they, they canceled Nor Northern Gateway, which many people said uh, if they had not done that, we would have oil going right now into, uh, into, onto tanker ships and getting world price. What they really need to do is they need to buy time. The Enbridge Line 3 will be coming on sometime by the end of the summer. That will take up uh, a lot of the excess oil. But our problem uh, in Alberta is that those companies are too good at their jobs. They have produced far more oil, and it's sitting there, and we can't deliver it. That's the issue, and they need more help and to get Saudis it to are the cutting coast. Or, and the Saudis are cutting mm -hmm. oil prices. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, okay, now I want to talk a bit, Teresa, about the deal that Justin Trudeau signed. Look, this was the NAFTA deal, the new NAFTA, whatever you want to call it, Kuzma, Uzmeca, there's so many acronyms now. <laughs> Let's just call it the new yeah. NAFTA deal. Um, it was really interesting to see Justin Trudeau, first of all, call Donald Trump Donald, as he said, yeah, I'm signing this deal, but I still want to get rid of those steel and aluminum tariffs. But he can't get rid of them. 
Does this become a problem that he that really means that this deal is less of a success that he can sell? It's absolutely a political problem for the prime minister. I mean, you know, this was supposed to be their their crowning moment to be able to sign this deal, have this this good photo op. But with tariffs still in place, you know, there are jobs suffering, industry suffering. I mean, that that would have been the time to say, not only are we signing this deal, but we're dropping the tariffs, and that that should have been the victory moment. Canadians understand that. Americans have much more power than we do at the table. We basically have to accept, we, you know, we've benefited from a good relationship with the United States. Now, not so great. Well, Jagmeet Singh was on the program earlier. I just want your take because of his political fortune snake. He said he would never have signed that deal unless the steel and aluminum tariffs were agreed upon beforehand. He's trying to sort of position himself yeah, a little I'm differently I'm... than Justin Trudeau. Does that work? No, not nice try. Like the reality is we don't have a lot of leverage with the United States and we have to kind of try to have some sort of deal. That would have, Look, left, the, that would have left the auto industry out in the cold, uh, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it would have been inside the fence. Yeah. Uh, that would have been a disaster. Uh, Trudeau had to sign it. There was no choice. You know, we all knew that we we're going to take a haircut on this in these new negotiations, and we did. But it, it was could a have been cut. a it lot was a worse. Cut, not a haircut. It, it, it could have been <laughs> yeah. a lot worse, and it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Nobody's celebrating, but it's livable. Well, I don't yeah. know. Was it? A, I mean, Teresa, I, I'm not sure what the perception is, and maybe the pollster can tell us. But I, do you think widely it's seen that we took a buzz cut or a haircut on this deal, or do people just think it was a kind of status quo you know we lost a couple things on the dairy issue i understand dairy farmers aren't happy but fundamentally people thought it could have been much worse let's just get out of dodge i think it depends on who you ask obviously if you ask a dairy farmer they're going to say it was a terrible deal if you're asking you know just a, a manufacturing worker they'll say i'm glad we have a deal so it really it, that's where shopping for votes when you're looking at you know how to sell this deal to canadians but it's still a work it's a work in progress in terms of anxiety for every plant closure that now happens for any yes. job that lost or gained, it will either validate or invalidate how people feel Let's about this trade deal. Let's not call it a free trade deal, please. It is not <laughs> a free trade deal. It is as much as anything an imposed deal, uh, and it does include tariffs yeah. against us. But you know, you know, you had uh, Mr. Baines on, and the NDP and a lot of people are saying, where's your industrial policy? Where's your policy for the future? Like electric cars, where are where are all these policies? We haven't seen anything. We're well, just seeing com companies uh, go under, and we've uh, and a lot of people in the innovation business, high tech business, saying, "Where's the money?" These guys keep saying they're going to give us so we can start to innovate. I think the one thing that people thought uh, with this plant closure and the collapse of the price of oil is that whatever new deal in the United States that we've been negotiating with, it is not the savior. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Craig, Nick, Bob, and Teresa, welcome to the program. Great to have you here. Before we go, the 41st president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, died on Friday. His was a life defined by public service, a World War II veteran. Bush led the U.S. during the chaotic post-Cold War period with a resolute but reserved manner, the kind not ready. often seen today. Former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney will be one of four people delivering the eulogy this week. George H.W. Bush was 94. Thanks all of you for watching us, and of course we'll be back right here in seven short days.